This morning I'll be reading from Genesis chapter 11, verse 10, verses 27 through 32, and Genesis 12, verses 1 through 9. These are the generations of Shem. When Shem was 100 years old, he fathered Arpachshad two years after the flood. Verse 27. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarah, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarah was barren. She had no children. Terah took Abram his son, and Lot the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarah, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Genesis 12, verses 1 through 9. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot with him. Abram was seventy-five years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarah his wife, and Lot his brother's wife, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem, to the oak of Moreh, and the time the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord, who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent, with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. You know, it's usually um, in some American history class and that we have learned this expression, the shot heard round the world. It's an expression you probably learned in 10th or 11th grade American history, the shot heard round the world. It is an expression for that first shot fired in the Battle of Lexington and Concord in 1775. The first shot fired toward the British Army, which ignited the Revolutionary War which then ultimately brought about the independence of the United States of America. Literally, the shot heard around the world would end up uh, creating a nation. This small little event, just one shot fired, beginning and setting ablaze what would become something colossal. The creation of the United States of America ultimately becoming this world power. Uh, this is somewhat analogous to the story that Melanie just read, this calling of Abram by God from Ur, opening his eyes to the glory of God, began what would ultimately result in a nation, a nation of Israel, a nation that would ultimately bring forth one that all the nations would be blessed through this nation. 
you know, it reminds us of the words of Zephaniah, do not despise the day of small things. Something may seem very small, but it will have a colossal impact. And you see that in our text today. Now, you know, you think about Genesis and where we've been over these past number of weeks. We see, even as Ray prayed, this good God has created a world. And he put in a man and a woman and placed them in the garden. And there... He gave them his image, right? Their image bearers are called to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. But rather than reveling in his image, they rebel by wanting to be like God. And so God in mercy brings judgment to them. And in judgment, he moves them out of the garden away from his presence. But he gives them the promise of grace that from the woman would come an offspring, a son, who would bring about redemption. In other words, overturn the curse, and bring the man and the woman back into this promised land. This blessing would overdo the curse. But then as we see time marched on, as we read chapters 4 and 5 and 6 and 7, we found that the need for this offspring to come and deliver, it didn't diminish at all, it only increased as the wickedness did in Noah's day. And so God again brings judgment through a flood, but he brings grace, a blessing through the ark, saving Noah and his family. That line through whom the seed would pass, the offspring would pass. God still not giving up on saving the nations. And then we see, you'd think, okay, well, we're starting over now. That's good. Let's, let's do it right this time. But we see quickly that as the earth populated, rather than spreading out and declaring his glory, they gather, gather together, they build a tower, again, seeking a name for themselves, pressing against the glory of God rather than giving him glory. They want the glory. And here we find ourselves now at the calling of Abraham is Abram. He will be called Abraham, but he's referred to Abram now. God is exalted is what his name means. But do you see the problem we're dealing with? I think Ray actually gave word to it in the prayer. This problem is not going away. This rebellion, this conflict, this anger, this, this kind of climbing up to be like God, wanting to be like God. Restarting is not the answer. We see that. Trying over and over again a new administration, a new technology, a new liberal kind of movement of freedom, those aren't the answers. We know this in our own New Year's resolutions. They aren't the answers. God's answer to the problem of chapters 3 to 11 is going to be in the calling of Abram. God, Moses wants us to see that the the sinfulness of men is so deep and so profound that it will take something radical. So you have the fall, you have the flood, you have the folly of the Tower of Babel. And he answers it with the calling of one man, Abram. And to those three debacles of human tragedy, he gives three promises. And in these three promises is our hope. Really with Abram right here, you have probably the high watermark of all of Old Testament Scripture. You have the fall, as one author said. You got the coming of Christ, Abram. And his call is probably the key moment of God moving in a unique way to save us from ourselves. 
So here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at Abram, and we're going to look at his life. What kind of family did he come from that he was called out of? Then we're going to look at the call of Abram. How did God call him, and what's that mean for us? And then ultimately, we're going to look at the response of Abram. So family, call, and response, if you're a note-taker, those are the buckets we'll look at. Look at the family of Abram first with me. And, and you see it in verse 10, he says, these are the generations of of Shem. Here we're back at another genealogy. I mean, we've been climbing through these things. Now, I know most of us look at a genealogy and we skip right over it. A, we can't pronounce the names. B, we don't know who they are and they don't seem very important to us. And so we just kind of go over them. But we found over and over that these genealogies have more value than just their historical significance, but actually a theological significance. But what Moses is doing here is he's waking us up. Remember now, he's speaking to the people of Israel, and he's helping them understand their own history. He's saying, this is where you've come from. So he traces the line of Shem. Now, now Shem, remember, back in chapter 9 in Genesis, Shem is the one through whom the blessing's going to go. So God has promised to bless. Remember, the curse needs a blessing to reverse it. So the blessing is going to come through the line of Shem. So he traces from Shem all the way to Abram, 10 generations. Now, it shouldn't surprise you that he traces Adam to Noah, 10 generations. So you see Noah as a type of Savior, Shem now, carrying the promise, traced all the way to Abram, who will be a type of Savior. He's not just connecting all the history of the prologue. You have all the history of these beginning years and he connects it to 12 to 20. Now, let me just give you a heads up. We're going to stop with the Genesis series after this week, and I'm going to pick up at the beginning of 23 and 24 and 25, and we'll march our way through the whole book of Genesis, but we'll do, because it's all in sections. Here you have the prologue, then you have the story of Abraham, then you have the story of Isaac and Jacob, and then Joseph. And so we'll look at those over succeeding years. So what Moses is doing is trying to tie together this primeval time along with the patriarchal time. So he's doing that, but I think he's saying to us, keep an eye on Abram. Abram is the one through whom redemption will come. And so he goes into Abram's life. So that's just verses chapter 11, 10, all the way through 26. Then you see in 27, he picks up the line of Terah. Look with me at 27, he says, now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. So what he's doing here is he's saying, okay, Shem to, to Abram is 10 generations. Now where did Abram come from? Well, his father was Terah. He had a, two brothers. One died early. One died early, when they were in Ur of the Chaldees. We find out, we learn, that Abram's other brother, they both took wives, Abram and Nahor. Uh, Abram's wife was barren. It, not just barren, but the, Moses repeats it. He says, she was without child, as if we didn't know what barren meant. But, but he's emphasizing this because it's going to come to play later when, he, when we look at Abram's faith. So, so Abram has a wife who's barren. Now what we know about Ur of the Chaldees, and this was... Uh, it's been excavated in 1922 all the way through 1934. They did these major excavations in what would be southern Iraq, Babylon, and they found that the city of Ur was quite sophisticated, advanced civil construction. Um, they had irrigation. They had wealth. They had arts. It was an incredible city. 
But what they also found about Ur was it was a leading center of moon worship. They even discovered a ziggurat there, a ziggurat with which they could see and worship the moon god uh, Nana. They were pagans. They were idolaters. They were moon worshipers. I mean, is this incredible? Now, you think, well, Tom, you're extrapolating this, and you know, you're taking a few facts, and you're developing a long line. Let me remind you, in the end of Joshua, when Joshua is sending the people into the promised land, he said to them in chapter 24, and Joshua said to the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, that is, in Babylon, Terah, the father of Abraham, and of Nahor, and they served other gods. So it tells us right there. So Abram was a pagan, a thorough, moon-worshipping, Babylonian idolater. That's who he was. And yet God calls him. Calls him out of that. Now we're going to hit the call in chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. But I want you to see the family that he was called from. Now, when you read the text, it kind of looks like he was called in Haran. But we know in Genesis chapter 15, 7, he was actually called in Ur. Because in 15.7 of Genesis, he says, I am the Lord God who called you out of Ur of the Chaldees and gave you this land. Uh, so, so he called Abram from pagan, paganism and idolatry. And then Abram and his family left. They followed the call. They went west towards Canaan. But you see, they stopped in Haran, and in Haran is where they settled. And that's where, of course, Terah dies. So that's what we're left with in chapter 11. Now you're thinking, thanks for, you know, it seems like such a history lesson, but try to grab with me the significance here. What we find here is that God is sovereign over history. He knows people's names. He, as you go through chapter 11, you know, it says this one fathered this one, this one fathered this one. And, and while they fathered many kids, God would speak to one name of the children and then another one name of the... God moves down. He's driving the nations to Abram because Abram is the one who will bring forth the offspring, who will bring forth a reconciliation of everything we prayed for this morning, ultimately. He is sovereign. I know we look, at, we look at history, we look at our lives, and it seems like we're in a car, and there's no driver, and it's just careening out of control, and we're thinking, who knows what's going on? Who knows what's going to come tomorrow? We feel that way in our life a lot of times. I mean, we hit patches of chaos. We may have patches of, of peace at times, but it, it just seems like a lot of life is lived in kind of a chaotic fashion, just responding to whatever comes new to you. It's overwhelming. You think, is God really sovereign over history? Is he really driving things to a certain end? It doesn't feel that way in my life. I admit to you that sometimes in points of discouragement or frustration or chaos, I sit there and I think, goodness gracious. I mean, is anybody behind the wheel? And yet we see here that God is just moving his purposes through people that are named, individuals like you and me. And he's moving his purposes through this. You know, when you feel that sense of chaos, like is God really even sovereign over this place? I always like to go back and look at my own history and, and see what God has done over the years to bring me to be where I am. They're not all good things. 
some of the bad things that have been in my life have, very, have been very instructive, and I would be different if, if God didn't bring me through those. I think about a scene just when I was probably four years old with my dad on a sailboat, and I was uh, kind of swabbing the decks, if you were, but I was a little kid, so I was just washing the seat of the cockpit. The back of the boat, he went down, and I fell overboard. Now, back then, we weren't so security conscious. I didn't even have a life preserver because he was just going to the boat, get some stuff, and clean up a little, and then we're going to go right home. Now, he later tells me, and I remember that. He, feels, he felt prompted to look. There's no Tom in the cockpit reaches over and grabs me. If he didn't prompt it that way, this guy wouldn't be standing in front of you. Or, or, or you think about my father. He went sailing in the fall one time. Uh, great winds, but deep fall, cold weather, cold water, and capsized his boat. The hiking strap, this thing you put your feet under when you lean over the side of the boat to keep it from, that snapped and the boat went right over, turtled upside down. He said no one was on the, no one was on the river, not, not one boat. Just hanging on the boat, starting to lose strength. All of a sudden a boat appears. Guy was able to pull him on board and save him. If, if he had died, my life could have gone in a totally different direction. I, I look back and I say, God, you're sovereign, even over the difficulties and challenges, to bring me. This is why I want you to know your own history. Not a family tree history. That can be valuable as well, but, but a spiritual history. How has God woken you up, even through trials? How has God moved you in your life? He's sovereign over history, even over the tragedies of our life right now. He will work his purposes in and through his people, even through what seems so chaotic. But God's not sovereign just over history. He's sovereign over salvation. Notice out of all the 70 nations at the plain of Shinar, he pulls one, Abraham, or Abram at the time. He pulls Abraham. What's meritorious about his life? Nothing. He's an idolater. He could have been like every other, uh, every other idolater. Maybe he was a rich one. There, there's no evidence that there was a spark of divinity or there was goodness in him. or you know, He really had potential more than the other ones. There is none of that. God chooses Abram, not Nahor, just like he's going to choose Isaac and not Ishmael, and just like he's going to choose Jacob and not Esau. God is establishing himself as a sovereign savior of the nations, and he draws men and women from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Now, if you're a Christian here, this is not meant to be a point of conflict for you. That God is sovereign over salvation is to bring us to a point of humility. I mean, because if you feel like, you know, you and Jesus were behind the thing, pushing it over the line, then you have something to congratulate yourself over. But if you recognize that outside of his sovereign mercy, you would have continued on in your idolatry, it brings about an incredible humility a humility that doesn't lead to anything but gratitude. Thank you. And, and this gratitude doesn't take license. Hey, since I'm chosen, I can live anywhere I want. I can do anything I want. It doesn't lead to that if you understand from which he's drawn you. And if you're not a Christian, in a way there's something appealing about the power of a God who can save even those that don't think they need to be saved. There's something hopeful about a God who is going to break through my own defenses that I'll continue to put up and save me in spite of myself.
There's something hopeful about that. So we see here, just in chapter 11, you see this sovereign God over history and over salvation. But then we see it play out in the life of Abram. Look with me at chapter 12, because this is the call. So Abram is called from the darkness of idolatry into a relationship with this sovereign Yahweh. Look with me at 12.1, because you see the nature of this call. He says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and from your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. This is an incredible call. I mean, folks, let's just kind of startle ourselves back to really being aware of what's happening here. He is calling, do you notice the cost? I mean, put yourself in Abram's shoes. Hey, leave your country, leave your kindred, and leave your family. It's one thing to leave the country. That's challenging because we're familiar with it, comfortable, the language. But leave your kindred, those kind of close to you in a, in a broader context. Go ahead and leave your family. You see the ascending order. But not just that, look at the cost of ambiguity. Go to where I tell you. Now we hear it's the land of Canaan. But that's Moses telling the children of Israel that. Abram didn't hear that. He just said, go. Go to the land that I'll show you. Do you see what's happening? God is calling him to an absolute trust in his word and his provision. Uh, the, the success of this operation, it's solely on God. He says, just go. You know, John Calvin, when he speaks about this call of Abram, he says it's like God asking Abram, close your eyes, I'll take you by the hand. That's what God said. You just close your eyes. I'm, I'm going to lead you. But God, do you notice he doesn't give any reasons? It, you might be tempted to say, where are we going? And uh, no answer. Uh, how are we getting there? Yeah, nothing on that. Why are we going? Eh, you got to hold on for that one, too. I mean, the old five W's and the H, he didn't get any of them. I mean, he just went that way. He just said, go, and I'll show you where you need to go. And he went. But though God didn't give reasons, he gave promises. Look at two and three, the graciousness of God. He says, and I'll make you of, and I'll make of you a great nation, and I'll bless you. And make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Five times we hear this word bless, bless, bless. The word to bless just means to grant favor, to do good. God is promising to Abram a blessing. Why is blessing so important here? Because the counterpart to blessing, what's the opposite of blessing? It's cursing. That's what you see all through the Old Testament, blessing and cursing. So the fact that he's promising a blessing means that through Abraham is going to come the reversal of the curse that brought about all the ruination that we're praying about. And he says, I'll bless you. Five times he says it. Not surprisingly, it corresponds to five times he brings curses in chapters 3 through 11. I'm going to bless you. Notice how he blesses him. He gives him three promises. First, he's going to get land. He's going to get land. Now, I want you to think of land as drawing our minds back to Eden. God created the man and woman and put them in a garden to worship him. God is giving Abram a new land. It's an Eden. It's a garden. It's a place where we can walk with God. Listen, Adam, it says, walked with God in the cool of the day. Abram, it's going to say, he walked before God. Do you know that God wants to be with you? You know, we can accept that God loves us, but most of us 
can't accept the fact that God may like us. We don't often like ourselves. So for, for, for someone to say, well, well, God even likes you. He wants to be with you. This is the purpose of the land. The land is we will dwell together. How did Ray end his prayer? I didn't read Ray's prayer, by the way, um, before he gave it. But he will dwell again with man. The land that was given, that promised land, is going to be the new heavens and the new earth. Again, he will dwell with it. God wants to dwell with us. That's the promise. We will be together. That's what he's saying. And not, not just the land. Notice that he'll have posterity. He'll be a great nation. You know, you see that, I will make you a great nation. Now remember chapter 11. You just read it. She's barren. She was without child. Uh, it's tough to get it. You know, to have a nation, you've got to have people. You've got to have descendants. And Abram will have descendants like the sand of the seashore. But she is without child. She's barren. This is an incredible promise. Barrenness is just a metaphor for hopelessness in this culture and, and in our own day for those that desire children that can't have it. But God promises, oh, you'll have children. But not only did he get land and this great nation, he also has promised a great blessing. He says the third is the, it's really, a, let's call it a universal blessing because Abram is actually promised, I'll make your name great. Now remember back in chapter 11, these people of the Tower of Babel wanted to make their name great, so God is going to, isn't that correct? God is going to make his name great. And his name is great. Three major religions of the world all trace their lineage to Abram. His name is great. But notice the greatness given to Abram is for others. Right? I will bless you so that the families of the earth will be blessed. That blessing for Abraham is for others. This is kind of the pinnacle of the passage here. This is why John Stott says, the whole of God's purposes are found in this text right here. God is committed to saving the nations, and he's doing it through Abram. Abram, not like, you know, there's Adam, there's Noah. Abram is a new Adam, and he's going to bless all the nations. The problems of 3 to 11, those curses that we're still living with, they will be blessed, and it will come through Abram. Now, Abram didn't see these blessings. We see many of them, don't we? Think about this with me. That seed of the woman, the offspring, that would be a blessing to the nations, of course we know him as Jesus Christ. That's what, that's what we learn from the New Testament authors. As I said last week, Matthew's Gospel begins in chapter 1, verse 1. This is the Gospel of Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. Now, you could say, well, Abraham had a lot of sons. But Paul helps us to understand in Galatians chapter 3, 16. He says this, he says, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It doesn't say into offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. So all the promises that were given to Abraham were meant for Christ. He is the one. He is the offspring through whom all these promises are coming. And that's why those of us with faith in Christ are actually descendants of Abraham. And you see this just later in chapter 3 of Galatians when he says, and if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Do you see what he's doing here? 
The New Testament reveals to us that no longer is God working through this ethnic lineage of Abraham. He's now working through the spiritual lineage of Jesus Christ. That Israel, we don't need Israel to be reformed as a nation with the temple. You know, the promises in 2 Corinthians 1.20, they're yes in Christ. Those promises given to Abraham have come to full bloom in Christ. So now those of us in Christ. So the church is the bloom of Israel. The ethnic nation of Israel has bloomed in the church. Ethnicity has given way to spirituality. We're now children of Abram. This is really incredible. We haven't seen all the blessings come to fullness. We will one day, but we've seen them come in Christ, and then the church has come forth, so we're now living in this age of blessing through faith in Christ. So you see here this call to Abram, this promise finds its beauty in Christ. So where Israel was, the representatives of God to the world, now Christ is true Israel. He is the Son of God, of which they were types. So this is the call of God to Abram. I don't want to draw an exact parallel, but I do want to point out to you that as God called Abram to himself, so Christ now calls the Christian to himself. And think about it. Uh, Jesus said, when he called us to count the cost. He said, if, if a guy goes and builds a house, count the cost before you start building. Otherwise, you might not be able to finish. Jesus calls us, and there is a cost associated with following. You know, preachers who have sought to increase you know, the visual picture of the church have not done anybody any good by softening this invitation to follow Jesus. To follow Jesus is to follow God. There's a cost associated with it. Jesus says, if you love your father and mother more than me, you're not worthy of me. That's pretty strong. That'll thin out the ranks. If you want to save your life, you have to lose it, he says. You have to lose it. Who of us is ready to lay down our lives to follow him? It, 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 there's a cost at following Christ. It's, it's not a promise of easy, smooth roads with decisions becoming clear and things working out. You know, we've bought into this triumphalistic view of Christianity that if I'm a Christian, things are going to go well. Eh, they will, ultimately. But for many, they don't. doesn't deny the goodness of God. There's a cost. We see it right in Abram. We, we, we think everything's going to begin working out. You know, for generations now, Christians have been in the majority, and we've had access to power. Now we're not in the majority, we don't have access to power anymore. Folks, that is the reality of 99% of Christendom through the ages over the lands. It's the way it is. We're just now coming out of our bubble and coming into... No, to, is he worth it is the question you have to ask. I mean, when Abram was drawn out of everything he knew to follow a God that he had just met, a God, Yahweh, who loves and saves. Is he this is a cost. So the call always involves a cost. For those of us uh, that would name themselves as Christian, we need to embrace this. And for those of you who aren't Christian, I, I do want to, like Jesus, just say before you build the house, before you become a Christian, you want to count the cost. There is a cost associated with following. One who is hated, those who follow the one who is hated often are hated. So let's not be shocked by that. I'm not saying, I'm not treating it lightly. I'm not acting as if it doesn't matter. 
I just mean it's part of the fabric of what it means to follow a crucified Savior. But not only is, is it a call to follow, but it's also a call to serve. Now, there's becoming a Christian, we see here. Following Christ is not just a new identity. You don't just get a new name. You are expected to follow, to serve. Notice Abram is given these blessings, but they're not just for him, they're for others. Right, right? He's kind of a conduit, if you will, of the blessings. He's not hoarding them up. He's, he's taking the blessings and he's going so that others may be blessed. As Christians, you know, we are called to serve. We're called to be a blessing to others as well. We've been blessed with the knowledge of the gospel. We are called to share that with others. So, so it, it's kind of, maybe it's... Uh, analogous to the geography of Israel, right? So in Israel, you have the Sea of Galilee. Sea of Galilee is full of life. It's teeming. It's filled up with the waters that come from the mountains surrounding Galilee. It fills it up, and it's a very vibrant sea. And, and it, has a, it has an outlet. The outlet is the Jordan River at the south of the lake. At the south of the Sea of Galilee, there's an outlet. So the water comes in, and it goes out. The Jordan River continues to work its way down, and it ends up at the Dead Sea. Uh, the Dead Sea is filled with the water from the Jordan, which is coming from the Sea of Galilee. But the Dead Sea is dead. It's filled with minerals, and, and if you ever swim in it, I have one time, it's like swimming in a bath of olive oil, because it's just a pile-up of all the minerals. There's no life in it. It's sucking in all the good. It, it has no output. It, it has no outlet. So it just piles up. And I, don't, I wonder if that's sometimes a reason for our own deadness in Christianity. You know, we take all the blessings from God. We take the gospel, the glory of it, the beauty of it, all the promises, and we just hold them right there. We hunker down real tight and kind of get in our little enclave, and, and we don't share them with anybody else. We don't speak to our neighbors. We don't, we don't consider going across the seas to preach the gospel. We don't look at the... We don't, we forget that freely we have received, so freely give. So, so we see that the call to follow, there is a cost, and the cost is to serve. But he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for me. That's the way of the Savior. It's the way of the seed of Abram. And, and ultimately, we really serve with the gospel, don't we? It, it shouldn't surprise us that when God called Abram, he said, go. So when Jesus calls his disciples, he says, go. Right? Go into all the nations, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. It's kind of the same call. And now Christ gives it to his church to take it to the nations. So you see here how Abram is like this conduit to the nations of the blessing of God to overturn the curse that we live under. So you have the family from which Abram's been drawn. You see the call. Look at the obedience. Look at the response of Abram. Just look with me at verse 4. Verse 4, so Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. This is, I, I love the, the brevity with which the biblical writers express truth. It's like when Jesus Christ is crucified. In, in Mark's gospel, it says, and he was crucified. I, I mean, a lot more going on, but, and he was crucified. It says, and, and so Abram went. 
God told him to go. Abram's 75. He didn't pack up the Penske's and the U-Hauls. He wasn't, it wasn't a mobile culture. It, he wasn't a mobile man. But he leaves Haran, and he goes. But notice how he goes. He goes probably a 500-mile journey. Folks, it takes me, I don't know, 50 years to walk 500. He walks close to 500 miles. Notice that he goes to Shechem. So from where Haran is, which is in kind of the eastern side of northern Syria, he'll come through the northern border of what is kind of the land that David would conquer the most of. He comes through the normal, the northern border, and he goes to Shechem at the Tree of Moray. Now, that was the center point of the promised land. He's going there and he places a flag by building an altar. That tree of Moray, that was a tree that, that the soothsayers and the pagan priests, when they heard the leaves wrestling, they would interpret those sounds, demonic wisdom for the people. And so he goes to that tree and he puts an altar right there. And God then appears to him. It's the first theophany in the Bible. That means it's the first appearance of God. And he builds that altar and worships God right in the middle of paganism, right in the middle of darkness. And he doesn't stop there. He travels south to Bethel and he places an altar there, another pagan sanctuary. But there it says he built an altar and he proclaimed the name of the Lord. In other words, he began to preach. Remember, Abraham saw Jesus' day, if you remember back in John 8. So he began to preach the greatness of this Yahweh who would bring forth a seed through Abram. But then he doesn't stop there. He goes to the Negev. He goes to the southern border. What's he doing here? He's touring the whole land, planting flags. This is God's land. Now, let me remind you that Abram didn't write this stuff. Moses did. What's Moses doing here? Moses is reminding the people that have been drawn out of slavery. They're about to enter the promised land. He said, this is how you walk by faith. Follow your father Abraham. This is what he did. This is what you do. Moses is instructing the people about to take the promised land. This is how he took it. This is how we're going to take it. So what you see here in terms of his faith is you see a faith working itself out in obedience. He says, go, he goes. You know, faith, we've done ourselves and particularly our children We've often brought them to understand you're a Christian as soon as you can believe a certain set of propositions. Now, we love doctrine here. So I, I want to get the truth and I want to get it as right as I can. But doctrine has to work out in life. I mean, truth has to work out in life. Just like faith, James says, I'll show you my faith by my works. My works are going to show that. So my life ought to be showing my faith. So faith ought to work itself out in our life. That's what he says in Romans 14. It's, it's an outworking of faith. So your faith ought to be seen by how you live. And, and so how does your faith, like where is your faith being manifest in your life? You know, if we're harboring resentment or anger or bitterness, how is that a reflection of faith? if we're struggling and not fighting the temptation of lust or greed. How are those things? You know, faith is to begin to move us towards obedience in those areas. Now, I don't think faith is to be perfect. It's never perfect in this life. You know, Abram, you could have asked me, why did he stay in Haran for as long as he did? Maybe he was too 
troubled to leave his father, not faithful enough that God would care for his family. Or you could look at verse 10 of chapter 12, just one verse beyond where we read, and you're going to find Abram going to Egypt because of a famine. What are you doing? He just gave you the land. So faith is often marked by failings. I mean, don't we have that in our own life? So when, when someone says, yeah, I, I can't do this Christian thing, I keep screwing up, I can't be a Christian. No, 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 you can be. A faith is like a muscle, it's developing. You know, that's why faith and repentance is the two words that the Christian lives with forever. We have faith in God, but then I fail. I get tempted by lust. I get tempted by greed. I get tempted by anger, and I give my way to it, and I give myself to it. And then I'm convicted by God's Spirit, and I repent. God, would you forgive me? I chose this over that. What am I doing choosing something, choosing something temporal over something glorious and eternal? And so I repent. And so God has given us that way where he can incrementally grow us from glory to glory. So faith is working itself out in obedience, but it's not a perfect obedience. So if you have just beaten yourselves up silly for sinning and you think, because I sin, I can't be a Christian, that is not true. What you do with your sin is more telling than your sin. If it leads you to repentance, that's huge. If, if you just look past it and say, well, God's going to forgive me anyways, you're not getting the story. So we see faith first. But you also see that, that his faith led to worship. He's not building towers. He's not building skyscrapers. He's not building cities like Cain. He builds altars. I, I mean, he keeps worshiping God. He, he comes back. Faith, if we believe what we believe about Yahweh giving Christ to save us forever, shouldn't that draw us to worship? You know, you know that Carol and I every Saturday walk around and we pray through every part of the service. We always pray for those people on Sunday morning when you wake up and, man, you just, I got a lot to do today. I mean, it's beautiful out there. I got a lot to do. I'm going to stream it or I'm going to miss it. And, and, and we pray specifically that when you get up, you're going to know your breath is given to you. And that you're going to want to worship with the rest of people about the goodness of God. You don't feel it's an obligation. It's an opportunity to corporately come together and declare to God the praises that he deserves. So you see in Abram, faith is always expressed by worship. It's corporate worship and personal worship. But corporate worship is a part of it. And then last, I would say this, that faith is manifest in having a pilgrimage mentality. Let me explain what I mean by that. You see that Abram, who would be named Abraham, because Abraham means the father of nations. You see that he pitched his tents. He didn't build anything. He lived in tents. He knew even this land, it pointed back to Eden, it's pointing to, he knew there was a better and lasting city. We know that because in Hebrews 11 it says, by faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking toward the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. Abraham, Abraham was a man of great wealth, but he didn't build for himself anything. He just lived in tents because he knew this wasn't his home. There was something about faith that caused him to keep his his nose to the ground, recognizing, I'm not long for this world. My life is temporary. Uh, I'm going to be here like the grass, here today, gone tomorrow. There was something about 
faith in the reality that we'll be with Yahweh one day that helps us not cling too tightly to the things of this world. I hope that's seen in your life. I mean, don't let just age drive you to it. I think that's the mercy of God. Age does drive us to recognize this more and more. But let the truth of Scripture drive it to you. So I was reading in the Valley of Vision the other day, and uh, I came across this part of a prayer that I wanted to read you. It was really, it really hit me toward this point. He says, I hasten towards, so this is the Puritan writing this prayer. He says, I hasten toward an hour. So I hasten toward an hour when earthly pursuits and possessions will appear vain. They won't matter to us. When it will be indifferent, whether I have been rich or poor, successful or disappointed, admired or despised. Uh, many of us live for this. We live for success. And he's saying, I'm hastening towards an hour. All of you, even if you're not interested in what I'm saying, you're hastening toward that hour. Whether it doesn't matter, rich or poor, successful or disappointed, admired or despised. But it will be of eternal moment that I have mourned for sin, hungered and thirsted after righteousness, loved the Lord Jesus in sincerity, and gloried in his cross. May these objects engross my chief solitude. Boy, may they be the object of my affection. So faith manifests itself in a heart of pilgrimage. You know, when I thought about how to end this sermon, I, I was thinking about Martin Lloyd-Jones, the preacher in, uh, in um, London in the mid-20th century. It, he wrote a book called Preaching and Preachers, and in it he spoke about um, one of the main purposes of preaching is not simply for you to know more about the nature of the text, which I hope you do. But, but he says, preaching aims to make an impression on your heart, to press on your heart, the greatness of God, not simply looking at Abram as an example, but, but pressing on your heart that God is great, he is mighty to save, he is moving among the nations and he's doing it in what appear to be often just chaotic ways, but he's drawing people to himself from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language. I pray that when you leave today, your heart will have that, that sense of the greatness of God just pressed on there, that the imprint wouldn't be the details of the sermon, it would be the greatness of God. That will move you to then walk in this kind of manner. Let's take a moment and just ask God to make that impression on our heart that we might be changed, and I'll pray for us in just a moment.